I asked Blake to play that song before the message this morning because I thought it was a perfect introduction to our text today, which is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. And we're going to see this morning how Peter offered a similar song of praise to God for the glorious salvation that um, God has provided for us through his crucified and resurrected son, Jesus Christ. And Paul was writing, or excuse me, Peter was writing here to Christians who were scattered throughout Asia Minor as a result of being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And these faithful saints were suffering all sorts of trials and tribulations. Namely, they were being harshly and unjustly treated by unbelievers. And so here in this letter, and particularly in the opening lines of this letter, he presented to them an anthem of praise, an anthem of salvation, in order to remind them of all that they had to be thankful for as believers, in order to provide them hope in the midst of the hurt and the pain that they were experiencing. You can follow along with me as I read in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging you as the author of this text by your spirit, and we ask that that same spirit would come now and illuminate us, grant us understanding, insight, And Lord, may the Spirit also make application of this passage to our lives, Lord, as both believers and unbelievers here this morning. For your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when God created the world, it was a perfect paradise where there was no such thing as suffering, no such thing as pain, no such thing as sorrow, and no such thing as death. And after creating Adam and Eve, God placed them in the Garden of Eden and warned them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or they would surely die. Well, as you know, God's arch enemy, Satan, disguised himself as a beautiful serpent and deceived Eve to question God's word and convinced her that she wouldn't die if she ate from the only tree in the garden that God had banned, and so she did along with her husband Adam. And the moment they bit into that forbidden fruit, sin's curse fell on this rebellious couple, along with all mankind who would descend from them, and even on the earth itself. 
And as a result of sin's curse, all of us have had to learn to live with pain and sorrow and suffering and death. That's not how God originally designed it to be. God had originally designed the first couple, Adam and Eve, to live forever. But when they sinned, death entered into the world for the very first time, and their eternal souls were instantly separated from God. They died spiritually, and their once ageless bodies immediately began to experience the effects of decay and death. And since we all sin, we are all born spiritually separated from God, and we are all destined to die physically. And so the unsettling reality today is that apart from divine intervention, we are merely a bunch of dying people on a dying planet. Consider for a moment the current death rate. The numbers are staggering. Three people die every second. 180 people die every minute. Nearly 11,000 every hour. About 260,000 every day. And 95 million people die every year on this planet. One man has gone on to say, he says, death comes to the young and old, rich and poor, good and bad, educated and ignorant, king and commoner, the dynamic young businessman, the glamorous actress, the great athlete, the brilliant scientist, the television personality, the powerful politician, none of them can resist the moment when death will lay its hand upon them and bring all their fame and achievements to nothing. Death is no respecter of time or place. It is neither season nor perish. It can strike at any moment of the day or night on land, on the sea or in the air. It comes to the hospital bed, the busy road, the comfortable armchair, the sports field, and the office. There is not a single spot on the face of the planet where it is not able to strike. He said the whole world is a hospital and every person is a terminal patient. What we call living can be just as accurately called dying. In other words, I'm standing up here dying right now. And you're sitting out there doing the same thing. And it's only a matter of time before death overtakes all of us, and none of us knows when it will happen or how it will happen. The Bible says man does not know his time. No man has authority over the day of his death. It's appointed for a man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. And as if the surety and finality of death weren't bad enough, in the meantime... While we're waiting to die, we have to endure all sorts of pain and suffering during our lifetimes. And so from a purely human perspective, it appears we've been consigned to a very sad, discouraging, depressing existence from a purely human perspective. But thankfully, there's more to life than the eyes can see. And according to Peter, there's someone who we cannot see but if we love him and we believe in him, even though we do not see him, we can be rescued from a hopeless life. And in this passage that we have before us today, Peter explained how God has mercifully made a way for dying people on a dying planet to be reborn through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can live forever someday in heaven. And this is what gives us 
hope in the meantime when we face all sorts of trials and tribulations and pain and sorrow in life. Now, few Christians have lived in tougher times than those Peter was addressing here. They were despised, they were mistreated, they were persecuted, they were even being killed. In fact, the madman Nero was ruling the world at the time, and he was notorious for dousing Christians in pitch and setting them on fire and using them as human tiki torches for his garden parties. And so Peter's letter here was mainly intended to provide hope for these persecuted believers who were in, in, in desperate need of some encouragement. In the opening section of this letter, he explained the basis of their hope. Why should they have hope? And basically what he says is that every Christian has a living hope that is based on our living Savior who has saved us from death and hell and secured us a lasting inheritance in heaven. And so Peter was encouraging his readers in the midst of the pain of life, which at times can be excruciating, to remember that life won't always be this way. This is not our eternal home. And focusing on our future hope in heaven enables us to rejoice amidst our present grief on earth. And the key to joyfully enduring the temporal burdens uh, that we have to experience in this life is remembering our eternal blessings in the life to come. And that's what we see here in these verses is that Paul, or excuse me, Peter is, is explaining the blessings that every Christian enjoys and or will enjoy that should give us hope while enduring life and when facing death. And so I want, I want us to see this morning from these verses seven blessings that every Christian enjoys and or will enjoy that should give us hope while enduring life and when facing death. Maybe a simpler way to tie together this text is simply seven reasons we can smile while we suffer. I don't know about you, but I typically don't think about smiling while I'm suffering. But Peter shows us how that's done. And my prayer this morning is that whatever circumstances you're facing in your life right now, whatever suffering you may be experiencing, my prayer is that the Spirit of God would take His hand to your chin, as it were, and gently lift your face toward heaven so that you can see that what you're going through is nothing compared to what is waiting for you in heaven. And so let's look at these blessings, these seven blessings that every Christian enjoys and or will enjoy that should give us hope Number one, the first blessing is we have been regenerated by a merciful God. We have been regenerated by a merciful God. Verse three, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. That word blessed is a common expression that was used both in the Old and New Testaments to give praise to God for who He is or what He has done. And here Peter is praising God as the author of salvation. He introduces God as the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here emphasizing Christ's deity in relationship to His Father. At the same time, 
personalizing the intimate relationship that we as believers have with God through our connection with Christ. He says that here is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which must have been especially encouraging to the persecuted believers he was writing to, that Jesus Christ was theirs, he belonged to them, they had a personal connection with him. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, and here Peter revealed what motivated God to deliver us from sin's curse. It wasn't based on who we are or what we've done. In fact, it was in spite of who we are and what we've done. All of us are rebellious sinners who deserve to die and go to hell because of our rebellion against the Lord. And yet in his great mercy, he looked down on our helpless and hopeless condition under sin's curse, objects of his wrath, and he chose to spare us from experiencing his wrath. In other words, he didn't give us what we deserve. He had mercy on us. And it was according to his great mercy that he caused us to be born again. The Bible says that all of us are spiritually dead Because of our sins, we are by nature objects of God's wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, regenerates us. He makes us alive through Christ. He breathes new life in us. He causes us to be reborn spiritually by the work of His Spirit through His Word, the Bible. In fact, further on in this chapter, notice verse 23. Peter says, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. We see the same concept in the classic passage about being born again, John chapter 3. If you come to Lakeside on a regular basis, you'll remember going through this recently when Nicodemus came to Jesus late at night, wanted to ask him some questions. Jesus said this in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Again, a reference to the Word of God and the Spirit of God uh, being the key to someone being born again has nothing to do with us. Paul made that clear in Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. In other words, none of us can get to heaven on our own. We cannot be a good enough person. We can't go to church enough. We can't give enough money to charity. We can't just try harder, be better, do better, hoping that God will overlook our transgressions, overlook our sins, overlook our shortcomings. Listen, heaven is reserved for those who realize that they will never be good enough on their own to get there by their own effort. And they realize the only way they will go to heaven is if God grants them new life. He causes them to be born again. And so the Bible makes it clear there's nothing we can do to earn heaven. But at the same time, the Bible says that God grants new life to those who repent of their sin and receive His Son, Jesus Christ, as their personal Lord and Savior, believing that through His life and His death, He accomplished all that needed to be done so that we could be forgiven for our sin. 
John's gospel says it this way, John 1, 12, but as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so as Christians, this is the first blessing that we enjoy, that we have been regenerated by a merciful God. Blessing number two, we have a living hope based on a living Savior. We have a living hope based on a living Savior. Notice verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, and here it is, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This biblical term, hope, is unlike our English word, hope. Oftentimes you hear us, we'll say things like, well, you know, I hope, uh, I hope the weather changes. Or I hope things work out better for you. I hope everything works out. What are we saying? We're, we're hoping, we're hoping so. There's no assurance, there's no confidence that these things will happen. We, we hope they'll happen, but we're not sure. Whereas when the Bible uses the word hope, this is not a hope so, this is a confident assurance, an eager expectation that God's promises will come true. No questions about it. And in this case, Peter was saying that because we've been born again, we have the confidence that our sin is forgiven, and we have the assurance that we will go to heaven when we die. And the reason we can be so sure of this is because God raised Jesus from the dead, which proved that he had accepted God's work or Christ's work for us um, on, the, on the cross, and so he ro- raised him from the dead. He says this living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, the basis of our salvation and the foundation of our living hope is the resurrection. All of God's promises regarding our salvation are confirmed by the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, proving that he had satisfied God's wrath and conquered death and hell. Notice again, uh, further on in this chapter, verses uh, 20 and 21. It says, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, talking about Jesus Christ, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So based on Christ's resurrection, we know for sure that we will experience life after death. It's not, well, I I hope, I hope so. I'm crossing my fingers, okay? I'm hoping so. No. Jesus said, John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's a promise from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. And so Peter goes on here now to describe that hope, specifically the hope of heaven. And this is our third blessing. The third blessing that we as Christians enjoy and or will enjoy is that we have a guaranteed inheritance reserved in heaven. We have a guaranteed inheritance reserved in heaven. Notice verse 4. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. By the way, I'm saying it this way because this is all one long sentence in the original language. Peter never took a break, okay? Why? To obtain... Verse 4, an inheritance 
which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That word inheritance is the same word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. But this word was used in the Septuagint to refer to Israel's inheritance of the promised land. Here, Peter was using it to describe all that we will enjoy in our promised land, in our land of Canaan, if you will, heaven. And notice that the inheritance, this heavenly inheritance that we're going to receive is unlike any earthly inheritance. In fact, it's so extraordinary, there are no words to describe it. And I think it's interesting that rather than trying to explain what our inheritance in heaven will be like, Peter resorted to explaining what it won't be like. And he used three words to describe our heavenly inheritance. First of all, he said it was, it is what? Imperishable. In other words, it can't be destroyed. It will never corrode. It will never crack. It will never decay. It will never spoil. Nothing can ruin it and no one can steal it. It is death proof. Secondly, it's undefiled. In other words, it can't be corrupted. It's without defect. It's without flaw. It will never be cheapened, tarnished, stained, or polluted It will always remain in perfect condition. It's sin-proof. Thirdly, he says, it will not fade away. That word fade away here was a a word uh, describing a flower withering and dying. And so what Peter is saying here is that this, this heavenly inheritance will never lose its beauty. It will never grow old. It will never wear out. It is time proof. And so none of the things that are true of any earthly inheritance that we might receive, okay, none of these things are true of that. I mean, some of us have received some earthly inheritance from time to time at one time or another, and sometimes it's worked out really well, and sometimes it's worked out really bad, right? We haven't always got what we were inherited or what we expected to get. Earthly inheritances are uncertain because they're subject to change and loss. They could get burned up by fire or stolen by a thief. They could be contested by relatives or legal authorities. Their their values could fluctuate based on the economy. But our heavenly inheritance is impervious to any of these things. It is permanent, it's unchanging, and it's kept totally secure in the vault of heaven until we get there to receive it. Notice he says it's reserved in heaven for you. It's guarded. It's protected. One commentator noted this. He said, none of the decaying elements of the world, none of the ravages of time or the evils of sin can touch the believer's inheritance because it is in a timeless, sinless realm. I don't know how you think of heaven, but that's a good way to think about it, that it's a timeless, sinless realm. And then he said this, quote, heaven is the securest place in all the universe. And so that's a blessing for us as believers that we have a guaranteed inheritance reserved in heaven for us. We don't ever have to worry about showing up in heaven and they lost our reservation, right? Uh, I'm sorry, I called months in advance and and you don't have my name on the record. I'm so sorry, sir. We don't, you know, you don't have to worry about that, right? Right? That's what happens here on earth. That doesn't happen in heaven. We've got a fourth blessing. In verse 5, we have ongoing protection by an all-powerful God. 
we have ongoing protection by an all-powerful God. Notice verse 5. He says, who were protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only is our inheritance protected, but so are we. And in the same way God protects and preserves our inheritance in heaven for us, He also protect, protects and preserves us to make sure we make it to heaven to enjoy it. So you never have to worry, well, I don't know if I'll make it, right? What happens if I, whatever. We don't have to worry about it. God is preserving us. He's protecting us. And we are constantly being monitored by the most sophisticated surveillance system in the universe. God is carefully watching over us to make sure nothing or no one ever harms us or destroys us. And He is omnipotent, all-powerful. And an omnipotent God cannot and will not be overthrown or overpowered by anyone or anything. And so we are completely safe in pain and in suffering, no matter how chronic, no matter how acute it may be. No disorder, no disease, no defect, not even death itself can hinder or remove God's hand of protection in our lives. This is what we call the doctrine of eternal security or the preservation of the saints And as part of God's preserving grace in our lives, he grants us the faith to persevere through the trials and through the tribulations of life that threaten to pull us away from him or or, or, or draw us away and cause us to fall away from him. Think about the perseverance of the saints, right? That true believers persevere. Well, the only reason why true believers persevere is because God preserves them. And so we're ultimately kept safe and secure in Christ by the faith and strength that God provides us. It's not our faith. It's not our strength. We can't take credit for it. It's God's strength. It's God's faith that he provides us. So in other words, no one who is truly saved can ever lose their salvation. But at the same time, if someone does walk away from Christ permanently, they never repent, they never return, That's proof that they were never truly saved. 1 John 2.19, John says they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. So Peter says, hey, listen, you're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You say, wait a minute, time out, Peter. I thought we were already saved. You're making it sound like salvation is something that's about to happen or will happen in the future. And so Peter was simply referring to the future tense of the doctrine of salvation, if you will. In other words, we enjoy salvation now, but we'll experience its full significance when Christ returns, when he comes back to get us. And so we always have to keep in mind there's, there's three aspects of salvation. There's the past aspect, the present aspect, and the future aspect. The, the past aspect is simply that we were saved from the penalty of sin. The present aspect is that we are saved from the power of sin. We no longer have to sin. And then the future tense is that we will be saved from the presence of sin. And that's when our bodies will be instantly changed and glorified and we'll be forever free from sin and suffering and death. And yet until that glorious day, 
our faith will continually be tested and tempered by all sorts of temptations and trials. And believe it or not, that is another blessing that Christians enjoy. In verses 6 and 7, we see our fifth blessing, that we have a proven, purified faith as a result of trials. We have a proven, purified faith as a result of trials. Notice what he says. He says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. You say, in what? Well, in what he just got done telling them that they have, by God's great mercy, been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, and you are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And here, Peter pointed out the vital connection that we need to make in our minds and our hearts between our future hope and our present trials and struggles. In light of what these Christians that Peter was writing to had to look forward to in heaven, greatly rejoice in the midst of their pain and suffering here on earth. The point is simply this, based on our earthly, or excuse me, our heavenly inheritance, Nothing we face here in this earthly life should diminish our joy. This is one of the great paradoxes of of the Christian life. It's the joy in pain, which really to the world makes no sense. Seems like an oxymoron, right? Joyful pain, painful joy. And yet this is the paradox of the Christian life. He says, even though now for a little while, in comparison to our eternal reward, our eternal inheritance, for a little while, if necessary, he says, you have been distressed by various trials. Again, Peter was writing to believers who had been dispersed from their homes. They were being brutally treated for their faith in Christ. And Peter encouraged them to not let their difficult circumstances rob them of their joy, but to remember that what they were temporarily enduring in this world was nothing compared to what they would eternally be enjoying in the world to come. Paul said this on a number of occasions. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. He's talking about how we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be real to us. He said something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. You ever lose heart? Feel like giving up, feeling like quitting, throwing in the towel, I'm done, I can't handle this anymore. I don't want to deal with this any longer. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying as a result of sin's curse, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, and here it is, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
And so regardless of what we are facing in life right now, we can rejoice knowing that it cannot keep us from our, in, our heavenly inheritance. And so we can rejoice. And another reason we can rejoice is knowing that earthly trials are not pointless, that they serve an eternal purpose. Notice verse 7. He says, these various trials have been distressing you. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's pointing out here that one of the purposes of trials is to test the genuineness of our faith in Christ. In fact, two times in verse 7, Peter uses the Greek word dakimazo, which is, which is the word that was used for testing and refining metals. And just like gold and steel refineries and factories operate in our day, back then metals would be subjected to this intense heat to expose any weaknesses and make sure they didn't crack. And in a similar way, God subjects us to all sorts of fiery trials for the purpose of seeing if our faith is real. And you know as well as I do, there's a whole lot of people in the world today who profess faith in Christ. They say, oh, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian. But as soon as their faith is tested by trials, what do they do? They fall away. This was the point that Jesus illustrated in the parable of the soils. There was four soils. Uh, One of them was the rocky soil. In Matthew 13, verse 5, he says this. Jesus said, others, uh, the seed of the word of God fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And he goes on to interpret this uh, soil with these words, verse 20. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Oh, wow, pastor, that was a great message. Oh, pastor, how do we, I want to become a Christian. And they're all excited and they're all coming to church every week and every, every day, time the doors are open, they're there and they're all excited, right? And yet they have no firm root in themselves But it is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. The point being, they were never truly saved. Warren Wiersbe said it this way. He said, quote, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. On the other hand, however, those who have genuine faith won't fall away no matter what trials or what sufferings God ordains for their lives. The classic example of that is, of course, Job in the Old Testament, who lost more in one day than most of us will ever lose in a lifetime. And yet he said in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. He went on to say in Job 23.10, when he has tried me, I will come forth as what? Gold. And I think Peter is picking up that imagery here. He says, so the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Stop there for a second. His point is that believers may 
undergo severe testing, but instead of destroying their faith, it deepens their faith, it strengthens their faith, it it purifies their faith. Listen to what Peter said at the end of this first letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. He says, after you have suffered for a little while. Again, he's emphasizing, hey, this is just for a short time. I know it seems like forever. I know it seems like it's never going to end, but it's just really for a little while in light of eternity. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The hymn writer said it well in that classic hymn, How Firm a Foundation. He said, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. We know that one of the common practices in goldsmithing is is that the gold is often heated to remove its impurities. And in like fashion, God often uses trials and tribulations to remove the impurities of the world from our lives so that we're more fit for heaven. Chuck Swindoll suggests that the variety of trials, these various trials that Peter mentions in verse 6, are like different temperature settings on God's furnace. These settings are adjusted by God himself in order to burn sin from our lives, to purify us, to grow us, to mature us, and ultimately to conform us to the likeness of his son Jesus. Romans 8, 28 and 29, God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. I read somewhere that uh, the goldsmiths in the Near East, living during the time when Peter wrote this, um, they would, as they were refining the gold, uh, purifying the gold, they would keep the gold in the furnace at a certain temperature until they could actually see their face reflected in it. And that's when they knew it was done. That's when they knew it was pure. And I think in the same way, our Lord keeps us in the furnace of suffering until he sees the image of his son reflected in our lives. Why? Because the more we look like Christ, the more we talk like Christ, the more we act like Christ, the more Christ is honored and glorified through our lives, both now and when he returns. Notice it says here that this proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now commentators debate whether or not Peter was referring to the the praise and the glory and the honor that we will bring Christ when he returns. That's the revelation of Christ he's referring to when Christ comes back to earth. Others say he's talking about the praise and honor and glory that he will give us by way of reward. I think it's probably a little of both. But maybe leaning towards the reward aspect here, when Jesus Christ returns, he will reward every true believer, especially those whose faith was tested by unimaginable and inexplicable trials. I'm talking about Those trials, and we look at what people are going through. Some people are going, man, I can't even imagine what that would be like to go through that. 
and, and it's inexplicable. It's, it's like, I don't even understand why they would have to go through it. What in the world could God be doing there? How in the world could they endure one more thing on top of what they already have to endure? You ever thought those thoughts? You just scratch your head, and, and maybe it's things that are going on in your life. You're like, I'm not thinking about the other. I'm thinking about me. I'm like, God, I don't get it. I don't think I can handle one more thing, but you just choose to keep putting stuff on me. And, and you can't figure out what in the world God is doing. I think God has a special reward for those of you that experience these unimaginable, inexplicable, inexplicable trials. Wayne Grudem said it this way. He said, God will commend those who trusted him in hardship even though they could not see the reason for it. They trusted him simply because he was their God and they knew him to be worthy of trust. It is in times when the reason for hardship cannot be seen that trust in God alone seems to become most pure and precious in God's sight. Such faith he will not forget. What a blessing, even to experience unimaginable, inexplicable trials, knowing that somehow that raw faith and trust in God is the most precious and pure kind of faith in the mind and heart of God. Well, we have a sixth blessing here. Peter's not done. In verse 8, we find this blessing that we have an invisible, inexpressible relationship with Jesus. We have an invisible, inexpressible relationship with Jesus. I mean, it's only getting better. Notice verse 8. He says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you're like, Who's him? Well, go back to verse 7. He said that you're. Faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Jesus Christ, you love Jesus Christ. And though you do not see Jesus Christ now, you believe in Jesus Christ. And you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Unlike Peter, who had the privilege of walking and talking with Jesus Christ, the people he was writing to were a generation removed from Christ, and so they um, had no personal contact with Jesus while he lived and ministered here on earth. And yet, even so, they loved him dearly, and they trusted him completely, which is what we're called to do today as Christians. He says, though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. Listen, it's not easy to place your faith in and depend on someone you've never met, let alone never seen. Think about how crazy that is. Now, there's some people that would look at us and go, man, those people need to get their, their brains checked. That doesn't seem too smart to be entrusting your eternal destiny to someone you've never met, let alone even seen. And that's, yet that's the gift of faith, is it not? You remember doubting Thomas. Thomas, one of the disciples, 
was absent when Jesus showed up in the, in the upper room the first time and uh, revealed himself to the disciples and he vanished and here comes Thomas and they say, Thomas, you wouldn't believe it. Jesus just showed up and, and, and there he was. And he goes, no, nah, you guys are joking. There's no way. I'm not buying it. I won't believe it until I, what, see it. And I want to be able to place my hands in the wounds, in his hands and in his side. And so Jesus, in a very gracious act of love and mercy, showed up again when Thomas was there. And he said, here you go, Thomas. Here you go, Thomas. And what did Thomas say? I don't need to, do, I don't need to touch you. I, I see you. I believe. And this is what Jesus said in John 20, 29. He says, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And I think by way of application, that principle applies to us. We are some of those blessed ones who didn't see, haven't seen, and yet we still, what? Believe by the grace of God. And with that, Faith comes the reality that even though we can't see Jesus, we know that he's right beside us in the midst of every trial, tribulation we go through. Probably the best illustration of this might be found in an unlikely place, and that's in the Old Testament. You don't normally think of finding Jesus in the Old Testament, right? But in Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the fiery furnace, their faith was being tested. They refused to bow to King Nebuchadnezzar, and so he threw them in the furnace to be consumed. And Nebuchadnezzar threw in three guys, and he came back to check to see how they were cooking, and uh, he noticed the fourth guy. And if you've watched VeggieTales growing up, He was real shiny. And I believe that was a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. To provide a great example and an illustration for us that no matter what fiery furnaces we go through, He is right there with us. And because of that, notice what Peter says here. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I mean, this spiritual reality ushers forth this spiritual joy that is so personal, it's so profound, that it defies expression. There's no words to describe it. And I think this is interesting, that it it seems to me that Peter's more excited in verse 8 than he was back in verse 6. I mean, he just said in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. But now in verse 8, he says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I mean, he's getting over the top now. Things are just heating up, building up to a climax, to a crescendo. And it seems that what the implication is here is that our present relationship with the unseen Christ should cause us even greater joy than our future hope when we'll actually see him just as he is. Maybe this could be likened to the girl getting ready for her wedding day, right? There's nothing more exciting for a young lady to be preparing for her wedding day. 
I mean, and she's just giddy. She's just having a ball, getting everything ready, and she's filled with anticipation, and she's just greatly rejoicing, and she has great joy, inexpressible, and, 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 and then, then it just builds up, it builds up, it builds up, and then here comes the wedding day, and then you ask her when it's all over, like, how was your wedding? You're like, it was okay, right? I mean, all this work to get there, and all of a sudden, it was over in like 45 minutes, and you just settle into married life, right? And it was almost as if that, that preparation stage was even more exciting than the wedding itself. And guess what? That's us. We're that young lady. We're the young bride, right? Getting ready for the wedding. And our groom, Jesus Christ, is going to come, and, and we're anticipating that day. But right now, this is the exciting part. And so this is a great blessing, this, this invisible, inexpressible relationship with Jesus. Well, there's one more blessing here that Peter mentions, and that is this in verse 9. We have a confident expectation of ultimate deliverance. We have a confident expectation of ultimate deliverance. He says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And I think Peter was referring here to the ultimate outcome of our salvation when we finally stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and receive our glorified bodies to go with our saved souls. The reason why I say that is because the moment that we're saved, the moment that we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, we receive the salvation of our souls. We're presently saved right now from the penalty and the power of sin, but we eagerly anticipate and look forward to the day when we'll be saved from the presence of sin. As that other great hymn, There is a Fountain, says, save to sin no more. What a glorious day that will be. That is the ultimate outcome, right? Where sin's curse will be removed and we don't have to sin anymore. And because there's no sin in heaven... There will also be no tears in heaven or pain in heaven or suffering in heaven or death in heaven. Why? Because these are all part of sin's curse and sin's curse will be gone. And things will be back the way God originally intended. And we will finally be delivered from these dying bodies and this dying world. Well, these are our blessings as Christians, blessings that we enjoy now and or blessings that we will enjoy, and these blessings should give us hope while enduring life and when facing death. If you're not a Christian here this morning, none of this applies to you. This passage isn't necessarily about you. There is a passage about you in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 that says those that don't know Christ are without God and without hope in this world. I can't think of a, a sadder description to be without hope as a dying person in a dying world. Well, the good news is that could all change today. If you're willing to love 
and believe someone you cannot see. And that someone is Jesus Christ, who came to earth and lived the perfect life that none of us could live and died the awful death that all of us should die. And after being in the grave for three days, Jesus rose from the dead and went back to heaven where he sits at God's right hand. And now God is offering forgiveness and eternal life to all those who are willing to turn from their sin and are willing to trust Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection as the only way that they can be made right with God and the only way that they will ever spend eternity with him in heaven. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then repent and believe today and you will experience what this passage is all about. You will be born again to a living hope. Now that won't necessarily mean that all your problems in life will immediately, immediately go away. In fact, your problems might get worse. Sometimes coming to Christ doesn't simplify your life, it complicates your life. But while your life might get harder, it'll get better. Because you'll have the living Lord Jesus Christ by your side everywhere you go to provide you help and hope no matter what you're going through in life. There's probably one song that has been sung on Easter morning in churches across the world in the last 30 or 40 years more than any other song. And it's that simple chorus written by Bill and Gloria Gaither entitled, Because He Lives. Let me just remind you of how it goes. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives, but greater still the calm assurance this child can face on certain days because he lives. And it's not just that child who can face on certain days, it's you who can face a certain days, because he lives. The last verse says, And then one day I'll cross the river, I'll fight life's final war with pain, and then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory, and I'll know he lives. And then the famous chorus, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living, just because he lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you hold the future. And because you do, life is worth living. Ultimately, because Jesus lives. And because he lives, there's great hope for us who are in these dying bodies, on this dying planet. And Lord, I know there's some who walked in here this morning, maybe even questioning whether or not life was worth living anymore. Maybe they came here this morning as maybe one last ditch effort to find some hope. And I pray that they would realize that that hope is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. And Lord, that they would embrace him by faith 
and that they would love him enough to turn from their sin and to follow him as their Lord and master from this day forward. And Lord, for the rest of us that know and love Christ, that you have granted faith to believe in him even though we've never seen him, I pray that we would find great encouragement and great hope this morning as we endure, if necessary, for a little while, trials, tribulations, pain and suffering and sorrow and heartache. That Lord, as we consider our great inheritance in heaven that is founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Lord, you would grant us the faith and the strength we need to persevere. And Lord, that we would have great joy, joy that's even to the point where it's inexpressible. Lord, cause that to be true of our lives, that we could be so caught up in this invisible relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ that it's just beyond words. And Lord, it would show even though we may not be able to explain it, it will show to those around us by the way we live our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.